you know, at home, I was always able to figure out if the internet wasn't working or what was going on. I, so I was kind of self-taught, which I find a lot of IT people are, you know, yeah. really have degrees in IT. And that kind of, at first, I kept telling Suzanne, I don't, I'm not qualified. That was Jim Coonan, who cared for his two daughters as a stay-at-home dad for nine years. The audio's not perfect, but what you might have heard him express was a hint of imposter syndrome. Did you catch it? At first, I kept telling Suzanne, I don't, I'm not qualified. That's how Jim felt going back to work once both of his girls were in school full-time. Lucky for Jim, the Suzanne he mentions is his wife, Suzanne Coonan, who happens to be a professional career coach and a former VP of Human Resources. But we aren't all married to career coaches, and even if we were, we'd still have to do the work it takes to overcome those feelings of inadequacy or uncertainty about our worth when we've been doing a job, caregiving, that society tells us is not incredibly valuable. This is Where Was I? A podcast about a parenting transition we are calling Empty Nest Version 1.0. I'm Angela Arsenault. And I'm Jessica Tickton. If the biggest question for full-time caregivers or lead parents is, what's next when their youngest child enters school, then how do we go about finding the answer? Well, one way is to go back to where and who we were before we had children. Where was I? What was I doing? Because as anyone who has children knows, your whole life and sense of self is completely transformed by the experience of parenthood and then add in the experience of being a full-time caregiver, and it can feel as though you lost yourself along the way. So if you want to make this transition with intent, and perhaps even with a bit of grace, we are here to help. Let's go back to where we started a few minutes ago and talk about this idea of imposter syndrome. It's a phenomenon that was first identified in 1978 by psychologists Pauline Rose Clance and Suzanne Imes. We spoke with Harvard business professor and social psychologist Amy Cuddy, who discusses imposter syndrome in her best-selling book, Presence. She stresses that feeling like a fraud or questioning your qualifications is actually a very human thing to do. It is, first of all, I think critical for people to understand that almost everyone in the world feels like an imposter at some point. Those feelings are human, normal human feelings. I just want to first point out that it's been framed as a women's problem. It is not a women's problem. That's not just my observation from anecdotal evidence. That is true. That's what the data suggests very, very clearly. So men are just as likely to feel like imposters as women. Uh, and And the reason it didn't show up early on was because the way in which uh, she was having people report it was not anonymous. So people, uh, men were much less likely to say they felt that way than women were to say they felt that way. So as as soon as things, the the more anonymous the questions, uh, the more likely men are to admit that they also feel like imposters. So I think that's important for women to understand because I think it's often thrown at us as another hurdle we have to cross. And it's another thing on this pile of stuff that's that's harder for women, and I think it's important for men because I think that men 
I hear from so many men who say, oh my gosh, I thought I was the only one. I want to untether it from gender, first of all, because I think that's really important because it's a human condition. It's a human phenomenon. So just to summarize that, to accept that it is widespread, you are not alone, and you probably will feel it again at some point, and that's okay. It's easy to understand why the transition back to paid work might trigger these imposter feelings. All of the necessary steps, from applying for the job, the job interview, and starting a new job, they all feel very high stakes. When you're going through a transition, like getting back into the workplace, say, after uh, working at home, you know, going back into the sort of mainstream um, flow is definitely one of these big challenging moments. And what makes it challenging is that the stakes feel high. Whether they are high or not is, you know, it, it, it's, it's dependent on your, your personal sort of situation. But, but it feels like the stakes are high and there's definitely a component of social judgment. So you feel like you're going to be judged. I mean, whether you're applying for a job and going through an interview or you're an artist and you're creating things that people are going to be choosing whether or not to buy or reviewing, you know, there's always this quality of social judgment. And that is scary for us. Uh, we really don't want to feel uh, that that we don't belong, and so that that social judgment piece is is just uh, again as humans, it's painful. So we've got the pain of social judgment, or the fear of it at least, combined with our sense of devaluation from being out of the workforce for some time. Those are some pretty important factors stacked up against the primary parent heading back to work, or figuring out the next step once your kids are in school. I know I struggled with that fear of judgment and general imposterism, if I can make that a word, when I returned to a conventional workplace here at ParentCo a few months ago. I have 15 years of journalism experience, but the last eight were strictly freelance and mostly at home, and there were obvious gaps around the times that my two children were born. I doubted my abilities. I questioned what my coworkers would think of someone who hadn't been in an office for years. And I was conflicted about going back to work to begin with. It's a lot. Thankfully, Amy offers a really helpful and practical process through which you can arrive, even temporarily, at a more confident place. The two keys, I think, are understanding really, truly who you are and feeling personally powerful. And by personal power, I mean not power over others, but feeling that you have the power to access your best, most authentic self. Authentic self is sort of a buzz phrase these days. Fortunately, Amy provides a really thoughtful and clear definition of what exactly she means. The self that you are when you most like and admire yourself. So when you think about the moments when you really felt the best and the strongest, that's the self that we want to be able to bring forth more often. No one's going to be able to bring it forth all the time. I mean, even, you know, on a day-to-day basis, like you have times in the day when you, you know, you're feeling like resentful or you're feeling, um, you know, you're feeling really down or angry or what that's not necessarily your best self and that's okay but we need to at least have access to it in these stressful sort of times like these transitions 
We've all had these moments or experiences where you recognize you are being your best self, times when you're fully engaged and present. This is often when you're doing something that you love to do and when you feel most confident. As a writer and producer, I spend a lot of time listening to people's stories. And in some cases, when we enter that realm of the raw and vulnerable emotions, I feel an almost euphoric connection with this other person, with myself. This is what I'm meant to be doing, almost like tapping into a universal truth. Another example is just the other day, I was at a preschool meeting for my fourth child, and I ran into a woman whom I had taught a birthing class to. She was struggling with leaving her three-month-old son, who was not coping well. And as we talked more, I could see the tears beneath her eyes, and I sensed it was perhaps her who was not coping so well. And I told her about a new mom's group that I run for postpartum women struggling with the same issues. And it hit me. This is what I love. I love to connect women with each other, to help women get the support they need. This is what Amy means when she says to think of a time when you're at your best, when you most like and admire yourself. This is when you're exhibiting your core values. It is these moments, whatever actions or activities you're doing, where you feel the best and the strongest that you want to focus on. So one way to do that, and this is very straightforward, this is a very sort of practical exercise that you can do, and it's been tested literally in hundreds of studies. Um, It's called self-affirmation, but it is not the Stuart Smalley kind of self-affirmation. <laughs> so it's not, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. I mean, you can't tell yourself that you're great when you don't feel great. You can't tell yourself you're a tennis pro if you've never picked up a tennis racket, right? Like those things, it doesn't work that way. And in fact, when you try to do that, all you all you do is make it worse by making more salient your feelings of insecurity and now you feel like you're lying to yourself so you feel even more disconnected from your best self mm-hmm. self-affirmation is this simple this is what they have people do and, and they they've done this in with college students but but now like labs around the world have done this in workplaces in medical settings uh, with kids and it works again and again first you list your core values. And what I mean by core values is the, the things that make you who you are. They, I don't mean like, I value freedom. I mean, that, that could be your thing, but I'm not talking about values in the kind of sense that we talk about them in politics or religion. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about, you know, I really value my friendships. Like that, that is the most important part of who I am. It's, it's the things that are unique to you. Um, that, that are just intrinsically valuable um, to you, and without them, you would feel like a different person. Mm-hmm. So I was saying that for me, I, I just, I love music, and if I couldn't hear music, if I couldn't, yeah, if, if somebody said you can never, ever go see uh, or listen to live music again, I know this seems like a small thing. I, w- I would feel like I that's not me. I can't imagine my life without doing that. I think for me, I also feel like if if I'm not in some way in my work helping people, I don't think I would feel like the same person. It's a core value that makes you who you are. Angela and I were inspired to figure this out for ourselves. What are the values that I would use to define my true self? Well, as I said before, it's listening and helping people. Also, I need to travel. 
I wouldn't be myself if I couldn't travel and seek out new adventures on a regular basis. And writing. That is a core part of my being. If I couldn't write, I wouldn't be me. The words that came to my mind almost instantly were family and writing. I've always chosen to define myself by my inclusion in my particular family group, and that only deepened when I had children of my own. And writing has always been the way that I've been able to express myself. I would not be who I am without writing as an integral part of my life. So we've identified our core values. What's the next step? You then write about why it matters to you um, and really reflect on, well, how, you know, how did this come to be a core value for me? And, and, and what does it feel like? And then you write about a time when you were sort of expressing or experiencing that core value. So if, you know, you write about a time when you, uh, you were helping someone and how did it feel to do that? And how did it feel after you did that? And how did you feel about yourself? And how did you see yourself? So that's self-affirmation. It's really three steps. What is your, what are your top core values? Why are they your core values? And write about a time when you were expressing them. That simple exercise, which can be done on a single side of a piece of paper, uh, although I think it's better when you speak, when you, when you share it with somebody else. Um, well, it depends on the person, but that is enormously effective at buffering us from the kind of insecurity and self-doubt and stress that we feel when we're going into a really challenging new situation. Amy explains that numerous studies have shown the effectiveness of this exercise in dramatically reducing psychological and physiological indicators of stress. The conclusion is that by affirming your core values, that is, going into a potentially stressful situation, knowing exactly who you are and what actually matters to you, quote, frees you up to do well on these things that aren't really core to your identity because you're no longer so threatened by them. Now, imagine using this exercise before your back-to-work interview, or even before the coffee date that your friend arranged with her friend who works in your field, and you're thinking, uh, what am I going to say to this woman? I'm so out of date and I can barely string a complete thought together anymore. But guess what? You can. You will. By focusing on what actually makes you who you are. There's one more element to this immensely helpful process that Amy describes. Power poses. These are the nonverbal body cues that will help bring out your best self. You could try one now. Stand with your arms outstretched in a V formation overhead. Or go for the Wonder Woman pose, with your legs slightly apart and fists placed at your hips. Your chest is proud and open. So by adopting poses that are open and, um, and proud and powerful, we begin to feel that way. Our, our bodies are really communicating with our minds. And I would say the body-mind connection is more powerful than the mind-body connection. And so when you, you know, when you're feeling, when you're in one of these transitional times, when maybe you're feeling powerless because you feel like you've been doing work that's not appreciated, you know, you, you probably will find that you are starting to adopt posture that is not powerful and proud. You're starting to adopt pow- the, the posture of a powerless animal. Mm-hmm. 
you know, an animal who knows its place in the hierarchy and isn't going to challenge that. But the thing is, that's incredibly self-reinforcing. So if you do the opposite, if you do the victory pose, you know, when, when you're feeling that way, you can trick yourself into feeling powerful. That allows you then to go into those situations feeling unthreatened, feeling confident, and able to really reveal who you are, not hiding who you are. So it's it's a that's that's kind of the combination of things. The yeah. self affirmation, along with then that feeling of personal power, that's that's uh, I think a good couple of steps forward. This three step process, the self affirmations, identifying your core values, and power poses, is not designed to answer the question what's next. It won't permanently resolve your imposter feelings but you will come to understand that everybody feels them at some point. And you'll learn as you practice that you can quell these feelings whenever they pop up. These exercises can also help reestablish your confidence in who you are and what you have to offer. They won't magically present you with your dream job or your obvious social calling, but they will put you in a position to better answer the question for yourself. This is achieved partly through what Amy calls calm openness. Coming from this sort of state of threat, and I think we often are in that state of threat when we're transitioning, um, especially when we're transitioning from a role that society sees as lower status to one that society sees as higher status. Mm -hmm. That's especially threatening. So I think that by doing that, before you get into the, okay, now what do I want to do, is going to make it actually easier for you to figure out what you want to do. Because I would say the challenge, I mean, part of the challenge is just that doing the work of figuring out what you want to be doing. I mean, that, that alone, that task can, for some people, be really threatening. I mean, I think some people are just avoidant about it. You know, they're just like, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing because um, it's just too, it's, it's too trying to try to figure out what I want to be doing. Because we're so scared if we can't come up with the answer right away, then we feel like, oh my gosh, I, I have no, you know, I, 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 I'm going to be in this state forever. Mm -hmm. And it really takes a kind of calm openness. This, that you, you need to be in this frame of mind that you don't have to make a decision today. All you have to be is open to what's happening around you and knowing yourself well enough to know when that core part of you lines up with an opportunity that you see. Let's remember that achieving this state of calm openness would be a lot easier if we felt that the caregiving work we'd been doing was actually very valuable. Imagine this transition for yourself if our culture viewed caregiving the way that Anne-Marie Slaughter suggests we should. That it's a public good. When people raise productive, healthy, contributing uh, adults, the whole society benefits. We'll continue this conversation about openness and first steps in our next episode when we speak with career coaches Suzanne Coonan and Michelle Friedman. Suzanne and Michelle will also give us an insider's view of the modern-day jobs landscape. If the stories we're telling resonate with you, or if you know someone who'd be interested in this conversation, please visit our Facebook page. Leave us a comment, or tell us about your own experience with this transition. We'd love to hear from you.
Thanks for listening.